When it comes to your relationship with God, do you bring anything to the table? Can you make yourself more worthy? Can you make yourself less worthy? What does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? That, along with other questions, is what we will answer today. And the first one we're going to get into is, are ghosts real? Are ghosts real? That is the first question that we got asked. So, I guess the first step in answering this question is to define what is meant by ghosts. And since I don't know who asked this question, I'm just going to have to kind of assume some things. I think if you mean a dead person's spirit hanging around the earth to haunt people, I think that's mainly what we mean by ghosts. When we say, are ghosts real?, That's typically what we mean by ghosts. And I think if on that definition, that it's a dead person's spirit hanging around the earth to haunt people, I think the Bible would say no, that ghosts are not real, that ghosts don't really exist. So uh, Ecclesiastes 12.7 will uh, give us what happens when a person dies. And it just simply says, and the dust returns to the earth. So we were made from the dust. Humanity was made from the dust. And so when it says the dust will return to the earth, it simply means that our bodies will decompose. Our bodies will return back to dust. Every single one of us, our physical bodies are going to return back to dust. We will all decompose. And then it continues, and the life's breath returns to God who gave it. So the term life's breath, I think, is better translated as the spirit. So it would be, and the spirit So upon death, the body begins to decompose, and the spirit goes before God. Hebrews 9.27 then gives us what happens to the spirit upon arriving before God. So Hebrews 9.27 reads, Just as people are appointed to die once, and then to face judgment. So when you die, your body begins to decompose, but your spiritual side, the spiritual side of your being, goes before God. And when you go before God, uh, upon death, we immediately go before God, for judgment. So our bodies start to de- decompose, but our spirit goes before God before judgment. The believers, people who have put their faith and trust in Christ, upon putting your faith and trust in Christ, he declares you righteous, he covers you with his holiness so and his righteousness, so he declares you holy, he declares you righteous. So upon judgment before God, you are declared righteous and holy. Non-believers who have never put their faith and trust in Christ have not been declared righteous and holy, are not covered in the righteousness and holiness of God. Therefore, when they stand in, before God's judgment, they will be judged based upon their works. And Scripture lays it out very clearly that our, our works are like dirty rags to God. That none of our works are good enough to be judged good enough to go to heaven. We cannot earn it. We cannot earn our way out of God's judgment and wrath. So the only way to not be declared unjust, unrighteous, unholy, is to put your faith and trust in Christ. So upon death then, our bodies decompose. And our spiritual side goes before God in judgment, and he will judge us according to how to 
how he has uh, declared righteousness and holiness to be placed upon us. So I would say there are no ghosts. So if there are no ghosts, what about when people say they have seen a ghost? We all know somebody that says, I've seen a ghost. And I think there are two answers. And the first one is they might not have really seen anything. It's just their mind playing a trick on them. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes we think we see something. When I was a kid, we were playing hide-and-seek in my yard, and there were these bushes, and a, a group of kids were like, I see a face in those bushes. And we were all really spooked out by this. And like we were just terrified. There's a face in the bush, bushes. There's a ghost in these bushes. And we were all scared out of our minds until somebody got a flashlight. And then they flashed it into the tree, and it turns out what we thought was a ghost was actually just a bunch of branches that kind of made the outline of a face. All right, so that, that's one answer. I think the second option is it could be a demon that is trying to trick people. And that actually leads us to our next question, which is, what are angels and what are demons? Both angels and demons are created beings. Both were created as angels between day one and day six in the creation account. Though we don't exactly know when they were created between day one and day six. Neither can procreate. They are not all-powerful. They, they cannot be in multiple places at once. They cannot read your mind. And they cannot force your action. In other words, they do not possess any of the attributes of God. Angels and demons are not God. They do not possess the attributes of God. But they are spiritual beings that were created. So one like textbook definition of angels is that they are a supernatural being, meaning that they are not a material being, created by God to serve him, often functioning as a messenger, sometimes even called divine messengers. Their ministry then is to do the will of God, praising God, ministering to Christ during his earthly ministry, engaging in spiritual warfare. So that's kind of the angels, what they are, and what they do. Demons, on the other hand, are fallen angels who have rebelled with Satan during his fall. So demons at one point were angels, they have rebelled against God, and now they are considered demons. Although I do have to give this disclaimer that nowhere in Scripture is it specifically stated that demons are fallen angels. We can't actually find that in Scripture. But we come to this conclusion because Jesus in Matthew 12 gives, there are several different points. The first one is Jesus in Matthew 12 has a discussion with Pharisees about Satan's relationship with demons. Now, they're not discussing exactly all the ins and outs of it, but they are discussing that, well, for, I should say that the Pharisees blame Jesus for casting out, say, or casting out demons by the work of the prince of demons. And so Jesus doesn't correct their theology here, but he enters into this conversation. And so what we get from this is that Satan is essentially the prince of demons. And we know from Ezekiel 
that Satan is actually a fallen angel. That Satan at one point was the grandest of all angels created, and then he rebels against God and he falls. So if Satan is the prince of demons, and he is an angel that fell, it stands to, uh, to, for us to conclude that, say, that demons are also fallen angels. We also see in Ephesians 6 that the demons have well-organized ranks that copy the well-organized ranks of angels in Ephesians 3. We also see throughout Christ's earthly ministry that he refers to demons as unclean spirits, which we could contrast with the clean spirits, or what we might consider angels. Now, unlike angels that do the will of God, demons try to thwart the will of God. We also know that a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. I think that's important for us to recognize. Because uh, the Holy Spirit is living within you. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit is living within you. And demons cannot occupy the same place as the Holy Spirit. So if you have put your faith and trust in Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells within you, then a demon cannot dwell within you as well. We also know that God has already had the victory over Satan and demons. I think this is important because I don't think we need to live in fear of demons. We need to recognize the reality of spiritual warfare. We need to recognize the reality of angels and of demons. But we do not have to live in fear of demons. Because Christ has already had the victory over Satan and demons. And we can live in the victory that Christ has already produced. So we need to be aware that, de that demons exist, but we do not need to be afraid because Christ is already victorious and we can live in that victory. And that will bring us to our next question, which is, if God is omnipresent, and you can tell the person that wrote this one is a, is a thinker. <laughs> if God is omnipresent, how can he not be in hell? Since hell is eternal separation from God. And so the question at hand really is, if God is everywhere, if he's omnipresent and he exists everywhere, and hell is eternal separation from God, isn't that a contradiction? So let's first establish that God is omnipresent, which means that God is everywhere all at once. So we are bound by space. We are finite creatures. We can only be at one place at a time. As much as I want to be here at church with you guys and also at the beach, I can only pick one. I cannot be at both. So I have to make a decision of where I'm going to be. And even then, I'm limited. For example, as much as I want to go to Mars, I can't do it. As much as I want to go to the sun, there's no way I can survive that. So. I am very limited by my physical being. However, God is infinite. And since he is infinite, he doesn't have the same limitations that we do. At the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis 1.1, we see that God creates the heavens and the earth out of nothing. So he speaks and material comes into existence. And through that, we start to get this idea that all material things exist 
not just material, but I should say all spiritual as well, beyond God. All things exist because God spoke it into existence. All things exist because God spoke it into existence. And then if we trace this idea of creation throughout Scripture, we begin to see that not only did he create, but creation continues because he is holding it together. So the only reason why creation continues to exist is because God is holding or sustaining creation. In Acts, Paul states that in him we live and move and have our being. So even people that don't believe in God live and move in him. So he is sustaining everything, even those who don't believe in him, even those who are in active rebellion against him, he is still sustaining them so that they can exist. Colossians 1.17 states, In him all things hold together. Meaning that he is holding everything in this world, everything that has been created, whether spiritual or material, everything is being held together by God. If for some reason God ceased to exist, everything else would cease to exist. In Psalm 139, David asks, where can I go to flee from your presence? And then he lists a bunch of places he might think of to flee from God. Heaven, the grave, the farthest parts of the earth. And the conclusion to this question is, even if I went there, you would be holding me in your hand. So there is no place you can go even hell, where you would escape the presence of God. I think the evidence of God's omnipresence is very clear from Scripture. Not only is God everywhere, but is involved in the very act of sustaining creation. His very presence is what sustains it, what keeps it together, what keeps it going. Well, what about hell? Is God's presence in hell? I would say from Scripture, the answer is yes. In fact, once again, his presence sustains hell. If it weren't for his presence, hell would no longer exist. It would absolve if it weren't for his very presence. So if hell is separation from God, how can his presence be there? Well, I think the answer comes when we say hell is separation from God, what we mean is that we were created to have a perfect relationship with God. The purpose of our of God creating us, is to have a relationship with him. That is the purpose of, our, of God creating us. That is our purpose. If you are struggling with your purpose in life, you might want to ask yourself, am I pursuing God? If you feel like you have no purpose in life, ask yourself, am I pursuing God? Is a relationship with God what I'm missing? Because I know a lot of people who have had a lot of stuff. Maybe everything that the world says you need to have a fulfilling life and still feel very empty. And it's because they've been missing God. 
if you truly want to be fulfilled in life, the purpose of you living is to have a relationship with your Creator. That's why Paul, in prison, can still talk about being content. That's why we see throughout the, the church of, or the history of the church, Christian after Christian being thrown in prison, being tortured, being burned alive, and yet praying for those who are torturing them. Because in Christ they are completely fulfilled. You can lose everything on this earth but have a relationship with God and still feel complete. You don't need anything that the world promises you for completeness. So you were, the purpose of our creation was to have that relationship with Christ. To glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. But because we have sinned, Sin is simply missing the mark. That's what sin means. In fact, uh, you, back in the day when they were having archery contests, if the archer missed, they would yell, Sin! You missed the mark! So we have sinned, and we have transgressed. Transgressed means rebelled. Every single one of us have missed the mark, but also every single one of us have rebelled against God at some point in our life. Every single one of us has shaken our fist at God and said, Forget you, God. I want to do things my way. I know what you've said. I know what your moral law says. And yet, I think I know a little bit better than you. If you only experienced what I experienced, God, if only you had my experience, you would see how justified I am in this action. So forget you, God. Forget your rule here. Uh, maybe I like all of your other rules, but this one right here, I'm going to do on my own. And that is rebellion against God. And since every single one of us have missed the mark with a holy God, and have rebelled against a perfect and holy God, every single one of us have experienced a broken relationship with God. Every single one of us has felt what it's like to not be in perfect communion, perfect harmony, and a perfect relationship with our Creator, the exact purpose that we were created for. So our sin has broken our relationship, has ruined the purpose. Have you ever experienced a broken relationship? Maybe it was something simple and easily resolved. Kids, has your sibling ever done anything to annoy you? And you're like, that is annoying, stop it. And what did they do? They just did it more, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. And then you blew up in them, in their face, right? And like the, the relationship just fell apart in a matter of seconds because you let your anger control you and they loved it. But then eventually you came and you apologized. They apologized. You both decided that what you did was wrong and you began the reconciliation process. The same is true for God. Because we have broken the relationship and rebelled against God, it needs restoration. It needs reconciliation. Our relationship with God needs reconciliation. The problem comes is that we can't earn it back. We can't be good enough 
to earn this relationship back. The offense was too great. God is too perfect for you to be able to just simply earn it back. Thinking that you can just do enough good things to outweigh the bad. But the good news is he has provided a way to be reconciled. And that is he paid the price for your sin. Because God is perfect and holy and just, a price needed to be paid for our rebellion against him, which included using and abusing the creation that he called good. So his love and his justice are tied together. I always like to compare it to if you said you loved your family. If I asked if you loved your family, almost everybody would raise their hand right now, right? If you loved your family, and you said, man, I just absolutely love my family, and then someone broke into your house and brutally tortured your family all night long in front of your eyes, and then at the very end of it all, they killed your family right in front of your eyes, and you looked at them and you said, well, this is a house of love, so let's go eat some breakfast. That would show that you don't actually love your family. You may have enjoyed the affection that they gave you. You may have enjoyed certain parts of your family. But to watch your family be brutally tortured and killed, and then you take their murderer aside and say, you know what, don't worry, it's all about love here. Shows that you don't even understand what love is. God has watched us use and abuse his creation that he called good, use and abuse other people that were made in his image, and for him to just sit by and say, you know what, I'm a God of love, it's all good, would actually not be loving at all. His justice and his wrath is directly tied into his love for us. Because he loves us with the perfect love, his wrath and his justice have to come down. His wrath and his justice have to be satisfied as well. The two are connected. They cannot be split apart. But the good news is, he has provided a way for his justice to be fulfilled, for his wrath to be satisfied, and also for us to be reconciled back to him. And that was by coming to this earth himself, living a perfect life, and perfectly paying the price for your sin and rebellion and my sin and rebellion. And all you have to do to be reconciled back to God, to begin to live that purpose that you were created for, is by putting your faith and trust in Christ and his work on the cross. And when you do that, you are reconciled back to God and he calls you holy and righteous and just. So in this life, we get that opportunity. We get that opportunity to be reconciled back and have our relationship restored. Or we can continue to reject God and rebel against him, continuing to break the relationship more and more. Now, although the relationship is broken, that does not diminish his presence here on earth. 
It is still here, and he is still holding this world together. He is still sustaining you, even in the midst of your rejection of him. But the person with a broken relationship might not even acknowledge his presence, or might even be in rebellion against his presence. So many theologians, and when it comes to hell, many theologians resolve this by saying that God is present in different ways, in different places, with different people. Or another way of saying it is, not everyone will experience God's presence the same way. For those with a reconciled relationship, we will experience God's presence with his mercy and his love and his blessing. For those in hell with a continued broken relationship, they will experience God's presence with his holiness, his justice, and his wrath. And that is a fearful thing. I know a lot of people don't like to think about God's justice and wrath, but as we already explained, God's justice and his wrath is directly tied to his love. We can't talk about God's love without talking about his wrath as well. One last aspect that I'd like to bring up is, what about when people in the Bible ask why God is far away? For example, Proverbs 15.29 reads, The Lord is far from the wicked. This makes it seem like his presence is not there. Though we have already established that his presence is everywhere and is actually sustaining the world. And I would say that this is speaking to God's presence as a blessing. So though his presence is still there sustaining that person, his presence is not there blessing that person. But he feels far away because he is sustaining them, but he's not blessing them. So we can trace the idea of God's omnipresence through Scripture to find that God's presence is everywhere. That God's presence can bless, God's presence sustains, and God's presence brings justice. In hell, God's presence will be there, but because of rebellion, the unbeliever will not have a restored relationship and therefore will experience God's wrath as a form of judgment. So they, in essence, though experiencing his presence, will feel full separation from his presence. Or maybe the best way to say it is that they'll feel his presence, but in a different way than those who are in heaven. Well, speaking of judgment, that brings us to our last question, which is, what does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? Now, this question comes from 1 Corinthians 11.27, and I want to read this one in context, but first we'll just read 11.27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, this is a pretty weighty warning, isn't it? So it might behoove us to find out what an unworthy manner means. And I think the best clue is to read this in context. So we need to back up to verse 17. Verse 17 reads, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. All right, so in 17 we see that the gathering together isn't actually for the better, but for the worse. What was supposed to be a time of encouragement and equipping the saints to live out their life in Christ became a time of division and comparison. 
So instead of a time that was for the better, like the time that we have together now, hopefully as you gather together on a Sunday morning, you're feeling encouraged and you're feeling equipped. We're developing community. We're helping each other live our life in Christ to the fullest potential, right? But what was happening in this church instead is that they were dividing and they were comparing one another. And instead of it being for the better, it was for the worse. Verse 18 and 19 help explain this a little bit more. For in the first place... When you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. So what is he saying here? He's saying, what, what does it mean to come together for the worse? It's that there are divisions now. And then he goes on, and I think verse 19 is, is actually a very sarcastic one. I've heard some people think that this was, that he's actually proclaiming that some people were like the super special and there were other people that weren't. I think if you read this in context, he's actually being sarcastic. And I believe it in part For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So what is he saying here? He's saying that there is division, there are factions among you, and why are you guys doing this? Because you're trying to find out who the super special spiritual people are. You think that there are some people that are more holy than other people. And so because of this, you are dividing your church up by those who are super holy people and those who are less holy people. And they're doing it in all sorts of ways. But we do this in all sorts of ways as well, right? I'm a better person because I have more freedom. I'm a better person, or I'm I'm more holy than you because I have more freedom in Christ. I'm more holy than you because I've given up more for Christ. You haven't sacrificed for Christ like I have, so clearly I'm more holy than you. I'm more holy because I have correct theology, and your theology is bad. You just have all-around bad theology. If only you'd clean up your theology like me, you could be holy like I am. Well... Actually, I disagree with you. I am more holy because I realize I don't need theology. Theology, that's just for heady academic types. But I am spiritual, and I'm with God, and I don't really need theology. So I'm actually more holy than you. One day when you'll recognize, then you'll be a truly holy person. All of it is rubbish. So they are using this time to be self-centered, propping themselves up, and dividing between those super special spiritual people and those who are not. Gathering together and observing communion together is supposed to be a time of unity, where we reflect on what Christ has done for us and how he will return again. And in this, we recognize that you are a masterpiece of God. That you are his original work, artwork. I recognize that God's Holy Spirit is dwelling in you and that he has made you holy and that he has made you righteous. That you have been reconciled. That you have been justified. That together we are a part of the body of Christ. It is at the heart, communion is at the heart of it, Christ-focused. Who Christ is and what he has done. It is not man-focused of what I have done and what I can bring to the table. So he admonishes them for their behavior. In fact, he basically says that they are making a mockery 
of the Lord's Supper. If we skip on down to verse 22, well, we might as well read 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that, they eat, that you eat. So they think they're coming together to eat the Lord's Supper. But he's saying, look, you've made such a mockery of this that you're not even, doing, you're not even eating the Lord's Supper. You're not even taking communion together. And why is that? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And you can kind of hear the tone of his voice in this, right? He's taking this seriously. Or do you despise? the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. By doing this, by, by trying to prove that I'm a super special spiritual person, I'm actually despising the church of God and I'm humiliating others that God has called his masterpiece. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Shall I say, look, you guys are doing great. Good job celebrating the Lord's Supper. And he says, no, I will not. They are making a mockery of the Lord's Supper because they want to try to prove that they are holier than thou. Then he goes on to give them the instructions that we study once a month. And he reorients their focus from being self-centered to Christ-centered. And I believe this is the crux. This is what it means to take communion in an unworthy manner. When we take it with ourselves in focus. Trying to prove that we might be better or worse than someone else. Instead of being focused on who Christ is. So many times I've heard people who think they cannot take communion until they clean up their act. Until they stop sinning. And that's not what this is saying. That's not what the unworthy manner is. In fact, if that were true, no one could ever take communion. You'll never be good enough. You will never earn your way in to taking communion. You will never earn your worth for taking communion. You cannot do it. So taking communion because you think you bring something to, to the table or thinking at some, day, at some point you'll bring something to the table to offer God, that you will have earned his favor, I think that's actually the unworthy manner that he's talking about here. And when we do that, it produces division within the church and it actually makes a mockery of the church. So while taking communion, stop making it about yourself. Stop making it about whether or not you're good enough. You're not and you never will be until you put your faith and trust in Christ. And when that happens, when you do that, he makes you good enough, end of story. There's nothing you can do to make yourself better or worse. There's nothing you can do to make yourself more holy or less holy. And it's not about you anyways, it's about Christ. So stop thinking if you're worthy enough. And start meditating on what he has done 
and what he will do. We have all rebelled against Christ at some point in our life. We have all shaken our fist at him and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. And because of that, we have had a broken relationship with Christ. We have had a broken relationship with God. And we cannot earn it back. Our good works are like dirty rags. The only way we can be reconciled back to God to fulfill the purpose for which we were created is by putting our faith and trust in Christ and his work on the cross. And when we do that, he instantly covers us with his righteousness, with his holiness, and he instantly makes us worthy. Church should be a gathering together to encourage and equip each other to live that out and to praise God because of what he has done. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for what you have done. You have conquered Satan and demons, so we don't need to fear them. Your presence sustains us. And when we put our faith and trust in you, your presence blesses us. And when it comes to communion, you have made us worthy. There's nothing we can do to make us more worthy or less worthy. There's no way we can divide up the church on who's more holy or less holy. But you have made every single one of us here holy and worthy. Because you are so great. Help us to continue to worship and submit to you. In your name we pray. Amen.